So before we begin our sermon, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant now in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you. And aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're going to read the entire chapter all the way up to the next chapter, verse 2. There's not many verses, so we're just going to read the whole thing. Chapter 27 only has 12 verses, and so we'll be reading 14 verses in total. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 28, verse 2. That's the passage that we'll be going over this morning. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find it in front of you as well. You can turn to page 234, 234. And when you have found it, please rise in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people, people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, 
Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is the word of the Lord. It's been 21 years since 9-11. And 9-11, perhaps if you're a millennial or younger, maybe a little fuzzy, maybe not. But for most, if not all, Gen Xers and older, uh, I believe that if you ask them what they were doing on 9-11 that morning, it would be clear, still clear as day. I had an interview in uh, that day in Building 7 of uh, the World Trade Center that later that morning. And just as, about, just as, as uh, I was about to leave, a friend of mine called me and he said, turn on the TV. And so I was about to leave around 9, so he called maybe 10, 20 minutes before and he told me to turn on the TV. I remember seeing this helicopter camera view of Building 1, or I think people call it the North Tower. Um, but, you know, I just called it Building 1. We, we just called it Building 1 because it was WTC1. But the North Tower and it was burning. I was able to see that uh, from this news camera angle from the helicopter, there was a hole that was made on the side of the building. And I remember the reporters reporting on this not knowing what it was. They didn't know what it was. They were trying to figure out what it was. And one reporter that I was listening to, that that at that moment speculated that it must have been a small plane that must have crashed into the side of the building by accident. Maybe it was a small plane, maybe it was a helicopter, we don't know. But after, as I was continuing to watch, and I remember just standing and watching the TV, a few minutes later, a second plane hit tower number two. And what transpired after is what we all now know. This was an attack against the United States, not just on the WTC towers, but also against the Pentagon. And one was headed toward um, the White House, uh, which was foiled by people who, you know, stood up against that. And there, there was um, a plan that was set in place that was executed. And I believe after 9-11, a lot of things changed um, and things have may may never go back but things have not gone back to pre 911 if you were older like like i said if you were a gen xer or older before 911 believe it or not you used to be able to get on a plane like that just just you just got on a plane you just go through a metal detector maybe and you just got on a plane now you have to wait in line like 5 hours but before that we would just get on a plane <laughs> I used to bring pocket knives and all this equipment onto the plane. No one cared. But now if you have like a can opener, they'll pull you over, right? They're like, excuse me, why do you have a can opener? And things like that. And so there was pre-9-11, there's post-9-11 that maybe many of you or some of you will remember. But there was something that people would ask. And that, that question is, um, you know, where is God in all this? How do we respond? Was God responsible? Did he do this on purpose? How come there's nothing that we can really solidly hold on to? And some people were confused about that. There are many commentaries going back and forth about it. Interestingly enough, 
That's the passage we kind of get to today. For the many years I've been preaching, um, every time we have a passage, it's not our purpose. It just so happens it lands on a particular passage where it's really relevant for today. And whether you would believe in coincidences or not, um, I can tell you, assuredly tell you that I didn't plan everything, like even this sermon, so it would land on today. It just so happened. But I believe it's because God is telling his people, God is telling his church, my word is sufficient and relevant for today. Just expositing the word every Sunday, where we are is relevant, it is applicatory, it is absolutely necessary. You don't need to embellish, you don't need to add on, subtract, just preach the word, and that's what we have been doing over the last many years. So we are on this particular passage, and in this particular passage, it is after, and I'm going to build up to why um, I named it uh, this title, but in the past nine chapters, there's a high octane, high thrill, very th thrilling sequences of escapes and stealth moves, like people like David going up stealthily, cutting off pieces of robes or obtaining spears and water jugs while everybody else is asleep. Very, very high octane. And now after these nine chapters, we arrive at this present text. The passage that we've read isn't the end of the narrative as well. The narr narrator just cuts it off after 28.2 and starts another story. So it's not even a complete story. He ends it later. But perhaps it's because we are to reflect on this section. Even though it doesn't fully complete this narrative, Perhaps it's for us to sit on it, reflect on it, and by God's grace, grow from it. This is something that I hope we will be able to do this morning as we go over this section. But like I've said, and as we've gone over, David has been running from Saul for a long time, a very long time. So it wouldn't be surprising, and I don't think it would take a lot for one to imagine how tired he must have been from it all he actually ends up going to the enemy camp he goes to the philistines and what's interesting and ironic about that is killing a philistine is what got david his fame and celebrity in the first place but now he's going to go back as we've read to serve them but there is something more intriguing about this passage and this is why this title is the title today and that is that God is not mentioned. Yahweh, the Lord, is not mentioned even once throughout this whole section. Much like the book of Esther, then we are left wondering, where is God? Not only is Yahweh not mentioned in this section, but the writer also gives no commentary on the transpiring events. He doesn't say what David did here was right or wrong. And at first, at first glance, it simply seems like he's just reporting on it, like someone would report on a robbery or homicide. It doesn't mean that they're condoning or uh, condemning that action. It's as if I said, at 8.46 a.m., Flight 11 crashes into Tower 1 of the World Trade Center, and 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 crashes into Building 2. 
just reporting on these events. But if I said, after each line, if I said at 8.46 a.m. Flight 11 crashes into Tower 1 and I hope these American infidels die, then I know, then you should know what kind of moral weight I am putting on each line of reporting. But you see, none of that happens in this chapter. Um, <clears throat> I was in Jerusalem and there are four quarters in Jerusalem. If you ever get there, it's a fascinating city to be in. I've always said I would love to go with our church and just explore and see even perhaps where even Jesus walked because they would dig because how cities are built is they're built on top of each other, right? So they would dig to what they believed to be 2,000 years ago and they found a road, right? And so perhaps even Jesus walked on this road and, you know, we would get to explore places like that and like, um, you know, old uh, artifacts of the ancient days. But in one quarter is where you go shopping. So if you want souvenirs, you go to this one quarter, and it's the Muslim quarter. And it's called the Muslim quarter, but you go to this one quarter, and then you go. And it's, it's like store after store after store. It's like um, you would see right next to each other, there's, you know, maybe there's a 20 by 20 foot, like looks like a room, but that's a store. And then right next to each other, there's another store. It's just a store. So there's a whole line of stores. What I found interesting is, and if you've been there, you know, and I don't know, it's been a while since I've went. Maybe it's changed now. But as you walk down, uh, people shout out where they think you are from. So when I would be walking down by myself, by myself, people would shout out, China, Japan. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, bro. I'm neither. They're like, what are you, you know? And so... <clears throat> Uh, they would just shout out countries. I went with a team, and so when we would be walking down the street, they would shout out, America! And then some people in our team, they were kind of smart alecks. They, they wanted to be a little smart. they go, no, right? And then so they would go, Canadian! It's like, no. And they just continue to shout countries because by the time they get to your country, they either know how to say hi in that language or they will say, hey, why don't you come inside my store now that I found some relation to you? That's how they got you into the store. And so, uh, yeah, we had some smart people, not in a good way, but smart people in our team. They would just say, no, we're not American. No, we're not Canadian. They would start shouting out European countries like, no, we're not in that country. And then one guy would shout back, ah, you must be American infidels. And immediately our whole team was silent throughout the rest of that trip. So there is a palpable tension that you know is there and present when you see people uh, in, let's say, any part of the world. What I find interesting, though, is that in this, particularly in this part of the world, we think that religion and God and country should be separated. No other part of the world do people think like that. It's absolutely interconnected. And so even when we talk about this, we're talking about, is there a moral weight? We must know. Like, people can't just separate the two. I mean, we love doing that here, but that just doesn't make any sense. You're left empty, and you're left wondering, what does this mean? What is the moral weight of this or that? 
And because of this, this is a very difficult chapter to exposit. But hopefully, as we sift through the clues that were left behind, we are able to see that even if God isn't directly mentioned, it doesn't mean that God's principles, His truths, and His directions are absent. So, I have three points which will lead to application this week. Three points that lead to a specific application. And the first point is David's plan. The second point is David's place and practice. And the last point is David's problem. So plan, place and practice, and finally, problem. So let's start with David's plan from verses 1 through 4. Now, I did mention that the writer doesn't put any moral weight for us to see, at least overtly, in this section. However, there is a rare instance of what the writer does that we don't normally see. From verse 1, he is showing us what is in the heart of David. Verse 1, then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. What we are made privy to is that there is a real fear and concern that David has for himself and all those that are with him. The word perish that he uses is the same word that he uses for Saul in the chapter before in verse 10. And that word perish means to be utterly destroyed. I will be utterly destroyed one day by the hand of Saul is what he is thinking in his heart. In many other places, when they use this Hebrew word, it's translated as also swept away, swept away. That means you are utterly destroyed, leaving no trace. In the very least, we can say that David, at this very moment in time, took the threat of Saul very, very seriously. So much so that he decides to go to Philistia, the land of the enemies. He takes his now 600 men. And when he first started, you remember he had 400. Now his army has grown by 50%. That's even more mouths to feed, to have been placed under your care. That's more people you need to make sure is okay. But not only did every man be with him that were soldiers, that, that, were, that were, I mean, they were with them, but they also brought their family with them, it says here, including David and his two wives. So every man was there with their family. That's a lot of people to take care of. So he decides to go to Achish, the king of Gath. And it was then, perhaps it was then, that he finally, he and his men and their families, finally get their first full night's sleep. You can imagine. And in verse 4, we are shown that David was right in that assessment. Saul was actually pursuing David still, even after all that, even after the torn robe, the spear and jug, the time where Saul confessed that I was wrong, my son, David, and he asked for forgiveness. He promised that he would not pursue him anymore, making David promise him not to harm his family. Even after all that, it seems as though Saul was still intent on killing David. Because it was only after Saul found out that David was, was in Gath, it says here that he sought him no more. So, 
David was right about Saul. He was still coming after David and his men. But was he right to flee to the Philistines? He was right about Saul, but was he right to go to the Philistines? I don't know. I don't know. Bible doesn't say. However, the Bible does talk about other certain concepts. So this is what we call hermeneutics in your sermonizing, or this is how you have biblical theology that makes sure that there's a thread throughout the entire Bible, not picking and choosing whatever you want, right? But the Bible does talk about putting your security in a stronger nation and not God. Consider what Isaiah says in his book in chapter 31. He says this, Woe to those, he's talking to the Israelites, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. That's what Isaiah is talking about, people who depend on a stronger nation and not God, because this was a nation called out by God, and they were for God, they were supposed to be for God, and they belonged to God. So was David wrong then in going down to the Philistines to escape from Saul? But I think that's the point. I think that's the point. We don't know because God doesn't say anything about it. I've read commentaries that actually go both ways on this. That's what commentaries do. They speculate and they give their reasons why for this or that. But I have my thoughts on this as well, and I believe, though, however, we mustn't lose the main point. What's the main point? The main point is that we are to sit with this, sit with the fact that we don't know for sure because God has not said anything on it. What's the main point of this section? And I believe it has everything to do with verse 1. I said before that this was rare when we get to see the thoughts of David or the thoughts in David's heart as we do from verse 1. David said what was in his heart out of his fear, and out of his fear would come his plan. This is how perhaps many of us also plan. We think in our hearts, our fear comes, and then comes our plan. And when that happens, I believe we are missing something. We're missing God. Now, I'm not against the fear part. That's a natural reaction to reality many times. Sometimes you are headed for imminent danger. There should be fear, and rightly so. But when you go directly into planning from that fear, you are bound to get into trouble. It seems as though that's how politics in modern day has been moving, is it not? A politician would go up and would state something that you all should fear. 
and then would give you their plan. There's something missing in the middle there before the plan. Perhaps that's why we are in the state of affairs that we are in. Take God out of it was the mantra before. And as things continue to get worse, what I hear now is keep God out of it. This past week, uh, <clears throat> Queen Elizabeth II passed away after 70 years of reign at the age of 96. That means she came into power or rule when she was 26 years old, which challenges our 26-year-olds. What are you doing with your life? But she passed away, and many people have said many things, but there was one... Um, eulogy, one commentary that I listened to in the UK that stayed with me. And this was in the UK, a former leader of the Liberal Democrats, which makes this statement all the more amazing. A former leader of the Liberal Democrats said in Parliament of the late Queen this, that she was a constant to us all, but the constant in her life was her faith in Jesus Christ. I'm quoting from him. Her religion was neither perfunctory nor ceremonial, but a living, active faith in a living Savior. End quote. Could you imagine any politician these days saying this, saying these words in the U.S. during Congress? Before our plan, after our fear, there's something that we need in between. That's what I believe we ought to learn. In between fear and plan, what is the application? So here's this first application point of our first point. In between fear and plan, we ought to lean, lean. Christians must lean into the truths that God gives us in His Word. And what you say in your heart will directly affect your plans in life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression gives us perhaps one of the most important pieces of wisdom a Christian should live by. And I'm going to quote from him now. The main art in the manner, matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and 
my God. We ought to lean. And by lean, I mean we must preach to ourselves. Preach the truth. Preach God's word to yourself. Your heart will then be transformed. Perhaps the reason why even those who say they belong to Jesus get deflated, depressed, um, dysfunctional is because they have not yet learned the art of preaching to themselves. But this is something that we must do in order to live rightly before God in this world. So did David do right or wrong by going to the Philistines? I said I would give you my take, and here it is. Did David do right or wrong by going to the Philistines? I think yes. In the Old Testament, there, are a, there is a specific way of communing, communing with God. David was aware of this procedure. In the earlier chapters, he had a priest and an ephod and communicated God, with God in that way. However, in the previous chapter, he mentions in verse 19 that he was driven out from that fellowship. You have driven me out from my people. That's what he says to Saul. So he could have reminded himself of the truth already revealed to him. Yes. But was he also helpless and starved in a sense because he was without access to commune with God and his people through the normative means that God has set up for Israel? Yes. So I believe the answer to did David do right or wrong by going to the Philistines, the answer is yes. But Christians today, Christians today have surpassed David in privileges. I need you to hear this. Christians today have surpassed David in privileges. But it's a shame that we do not take advantage of the theological riches that are afforded to us in Jesus Christ. And how are we to do that? My brother, my sister, preach to yourself. Lean into God by leaning into his word. The second point is David's place in practice from verses 5 to 12. David knew that he needed to be shrewd in his dealing with Achish. And that, that meant David couldn't have Achish hovering over him all the time, looking over his every move. So Achish gives David and all those that were with him a place called Ziklag. And Ziklag was a border town to Israel. And after this, David and the kings controlled this town for Judah. But because this was a border town, it was constantly raided. Raided by whom? This border town was constantly raided by the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. These nations would constantly raid Israel, and in particular, this border town. But if you remember your Bible, Israel was supposed to wipe out these groups when they first came into Canaan, but they had failed to do so. And now what we see is constant raids coming down from these raiders. David, after acquiring this place, flips the script in some ways. David becomes the raider of the raiders. He raids the lands of the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. But when he raids them, he kills everyone in those cities and towns. And you might want to call back to chapter 15 when God commanded Saul to kill every one of the Amalekites and Saul didn't. 
Saul kept for himself the good things, right? He didn't kill the sheep and oxen and donkeys and things like that. But David didn't kill these guys for religious reasons. The writer tells us why David killed and wiped out all of them in verse 9. He would wipe out every person in that city or town because he didn't want any news to go back to Achish because he was going to tell Achish that this plunder that he got was actually from Israel. So this wasn't for a religious reason, but he continues to keep his charade up with Achish and by keeping this charade up with Achish, David gets a lot of blood on his hands. I told you this was going to be a difficult chapter. Now, did the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites deserve death? And in particular, this kind of death? And perhaps. But when you read this, the reader might sense that something isn't fully right here. I believe that's on purpose. You know, there's a few rounds, uh, a few videos making its rounds on the internet these days of regular Brazilian citizens. And I'm going to say this with a disclaimer. The, these videos are disturbing. But these are regular Brazilian citizens taking justice into their own hands. Apparently, crime is so rampant and is going unchecked and there are these motorcycle gangs or motorcycle thieves that would come and rob you at gunpoint or rob or take people's purses and things like that. But there are videos of cars running over these would-be thieves on these motorcycles. They would just run them over at full speed. I even saw this one where the caption read where someone had apparently stolen something from a parish so the priest got in his car and ran over the thief while he was still on the sidewalk. Now, I don't know if the video was actually a video of a priest and if that person that he ran over was actually a thief, but I did see a car running over someone. But the reason why I'm mentioning these examples is there are so many examples, so many videos of these out there. It's hard for me to think that it's, that it's something else other than what people are saying about it on the Internet. So if this is true, and this is actually happening, if this is true, what are we to think about it? Whether this is true or not is beside the point. The question is, what if crime got so bad, and the people that were supposed to protect you neglect to fulfill their duties? What if you saw a purse snatcher right in front of you? Would it be okay to run them over with your car? I don't blame people if you responded by saying something like, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You see, without a clear mandate from God, David is taking the initiative to go out and kill the raiders and then using that plunder to deceive Achish into thinking that he's raiding his own countrymen. Now, if you're reading this and thinking, mm, I don't know about that, I think that's a good start as well. If it was a religious mandate, then he wouldn't have taken the spoils. Remember how God wants everything to be wiped out. I would remind you that Saul was forbidden from doing so, but he did it anyway. He took those things that he should have not taken. But these acts earn David. What David does earns David the trust of Achish, 
And here, at the very end of the chapter, we are made privy to another person's thoughts. So first we heard David's thoughts. Now we are made privy to Achish's thoughts. Achish thought, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And this statement follows in parallel to David's thoughts in verse 1. So both the beginning of the chapter and end of this chapter tell us about the thoughts of these two kings. And they both have a premise, that means the facts that they've gathered, and then a plan or a conclusion or something that they will execute. But in this case, case excuse me, Achish not only has his facts wrong, but his conclusion is therefore wrong as well. We know that David would not always be his servant. Even before Achish thought that, from verse 7, David would only stay in that land for a year and four months. But during that short span of time, he earns Achish's trust. Achish's mistake was from his faulty information. His information was faulty, so his conclusion couldn't be anything other than faulty as well. But for Achish, it was pretty clear to him that it wasn't the Lord that he trusted, but his own faculties. So if the first application of the first point is to lean, preach to yourself, the second application point then is to lean, but not on your own understanding. It's when we lean on our own knowledge and faculties that we end up in trouble. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 to 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight or he will make straight your paths. In all your, in all your ways means with all your heart. And that's what we learn in the Bible. You cannot half-heartedly follow God. That's not how anything works, by the way, but especially not with God. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, this is what Jesus is saying to a would-be disciple, someone that wants to follow him, but says, let me first do this. And Jesus responds this way. You know, if someone wants to follow you, you might be like, wow, that's awesome. That's great. You want to join CGS? Awesome. That kind of thing. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus goes, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That means if you are on the plow and you are ready to put seeds in, so you got to dig up the ground, you got to plow. If you put your hands on the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is being very straightforward. You might even say harsh, but is he telling a lie? It's the truth. You can't put your hands on a plow and look back. You'll go everywhere. You'll mess up the whole ground. You won't be tilling the ground. You'll just be doing whatever you want. This is why when people say, well, why can't I follow Jesus and? See, that's where you get into trouble. This half-heartedness. Why can't I follow Jesus and sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Or why can't I follow Jesus and not attend church service? Why can't I follow Jesus and continue stealing? Whatever it is, if you have any other priority over what Christ commands, that's your and. That's your and. And this is how Jesus responds. No one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Jesus is telling us what truth. This is the truth. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Christ. And he says it himself earlier in that chapter. He would say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not easy following Christ. But the alternative is to make yourself an enemy of God. So if there's an application point, it is lean, but not on your own understanding. The last point is David's problem. It's just two verses. David's problem from verses 1 and 2 in chapter 28. The passage ends with Achish commanding David to go with him to war against Israel. And there is some wordplay that happens. And you can see the words in English very well. Excellent translation. Wonderful. ESV is the bomb. It means something to the effect of surely. Surely, right? Surely you will know what your servant can do. Very well, you will know what your servant can do. And then Achish responds, surely or very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Surely, honestly, for sure, dude. That's what it means, right? It's a play on words because David is obviously not saying things clearly, but Achish interprets that in his favor. And why wouldn't he? After all this time, he thought that David was making himself a stench to his own people. And that's just how the section ends. The section ends just right there. There is an aspect, however, of David after reading this that we may not have seen or noticed before. David has gone to the extreme of wiping out whole cities and towns for his agenda. He is being shown here as, in the very least, less than honest when dealing with Achish, who received David, by the way, when David was in dire need. Achish received David. David, you may have thought then to be an exemplar of the faith and virtue this whole time, all these nine chapters or whatever it was, you may think, wow, David, exemplar. But now we are starting to see some gray areas, perhaps even reminiscent of Saul. Oh my, will David turn out like Saul then? Oh no, perhaps all this time you saw David and Saul as figures that are diametrically opposed to each other, especially morally. And perhaps if you thought that, you were guilty then too of hero worship. Saul and David may not be on the same platforms of righteousness and virtue, but David surely is not the epitome of virtue either. Both of these statements can be true. And we are reminded of that in this chapter. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 makes it clear, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And that includes David. When we enter into the kingdom of God, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, what is the precondition? What are the conditions for you to enter into the kingdom of God? And the answer is, in the Bible is perfection. Perfection. You need to be perfect to enter into a place with a perfect God. Otherwise, you will be cast out. That only makes sense, doesn't it? 
But here's the next question. Does anyone fit that condition? The answer is no one. Not one. And then the next question should be, is anyone in heaven? And the answer is yes. How is that possible? If no one is righteous and that is our condition for entering the kingdom of God, if perfection is the condition, how is it that we get into heaven? And this is the final application point. The final application point is lean. Lean into grace. We see that all people, even the ones we think to be the cream of the crop, are less than stellar at times. Many times they are less than stellar. What we must do, if even the heroes of the faith can't make the cut, what we must do is we must understand what God does, and He gives us His grace. And that's what we are called to do. The living God doesn't have clean material to work with, but we see time after time that He does work with it. How is this possible? And we must learn to understand that we have to lean into His grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What does it mean to lean into grace? When God is hard to find, when you can't fully understand, when it seems as though something is missing, what are we to do? Yes, we are to lean into His Word. Yes, we are not to lean on our own understanding, but we must learn to lean into His grace. That means we fall upon the foot of the cross, asking for mercy, understanding this, that God prefers mercy over judgment. Where does it say that? It says that in the Word. The Bible teaches us God's character. So when we lean into His grace, what we are saying is all these things. We are leaning into His Word. We're not leaning on our own understanding, but we're leaning in faith into His grace. And when we understand what grace is, we understand that it is not something that we deserve at all. There's nothing that we could have done to merit His favor because to get his favor is absolute perfection, and we do not have that. But when we learn to lean into his grace, what we are understanding is that only by God's mercy can we be saved. If that's the case, every single one of you that claims that they are a Christian has become a Christian because of God's mercy, not because of your merits. Not because you did anything good, not because you're awesome, not because you have this high superior morality over everyone else. It is because God was merciful to you. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then we should be people understanding that we have been given something so amazing that if I said the words amazing grace, that wouldn't be enough to describe how amazing that grace truly is for each and every one of your lives. This is the grace that we have been given, that we are not righteous, not one, that we are completely fallen, and it says in the Bible, dead in our trespasses. That means we couldn't even raise our hands to receive any gift. 
We're simply dead. But because of his mercy toward us, he made us alive in Christ. That those who place their trust in Jesus Christ are made alive. And when we are made alive, we are to, now we can start breathing, we can start seeing, we can start acting. And so now when we serve God in worship, it is out of sheer thanksgiving and gratitude we give this worship. You know, when you enter a church worship service, you understand what they believe in how they worship. So when you come here and sit down, you understand what the church believes, at least generally. When you came down here, I'll just pick out one thing. When you came down here, and if you're new, you saw that we have a confession of sin, and we all recite this together. I'm not sure if we all recite it in the gusto. We do, we should, but we do recite it together. What does that mean? That means that we are not sitting here because we think we deserve God's favor. We're not sitting here because we think that we're generally good. We just need a little oomph. We need a little gravy on top of our goodness. We believe that we are, we are utterly depraved, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that we confess to God, we need you. That's the culture. That's what we are confessing when we confess our sins. We are not perfect, and we need Jesus Christ. And the fact that we've received him is grace. We didn't deserve it, but we have been given his grace. And because of that, we can respond with shouts of adulation, with praise, giving God glory, singing the way we sing. Because it is not by works that we have been saved, but we have been saved by His grace. It is a gift of God, as we have read. But because we've been given that, we can now respond in proper worship. So I encourage you, if you have not already, learn to lean into His Word. Preach to yourself. It's so important that you do this every day of your lives. Number two, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust in yourself. You will be tempted to do so. You will be tempted to think that my wisdom trumps everything, but you are running on faulty information. You will get yourself in trouble. And number three, then, is the most important of all. Lean into the grace of God. He is the one that will carry you through every and any circumstance. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word that you give us this morning. There are difficult times in our personal journeys and our corporate journeys, in our nation's journey. But Lord God, we want to confess to you now our need, our desperate need for a Savior for you. Help us to live this truth out in our lives by leaning into your grace. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps there is something in our lives that we do have to confess of. Maybe many times we have not preached to ourselves and our faith has started to be shaken a little bit. Maybe many times we'd rather lean on our own wisdom, on our own knowledge, and we've come up short. And perhaps that's what we need to confess to the Lord as well. Most of all, let's confess that we must lean on Jesus Christ wholly 
and completely as Savior and Lord as he leads us and this church. Let's pray.